The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 397 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from practice. Our topic today is principles of personal health information privacy for persons living with HIV AIDS. HIV stands for human immunodeficiency virus. This is a virus which damages or destroys the body's immune system cells. AIDS stands for Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, which is the most advanced stage of infection with HIV. Now, HIV is most often spread through unprotected sex with an infected person, but it may also be spread by the sharing of drug needles, through contact with the blood of an infected person, and by mothers to their babies during pregnancy or childbirth. Now, the HIV infection's first signs may be swollen glands and flu-like symptoms, which may come and go for a month or two after infection. The most severe signs and symptoms, however, may not appear until months or years following the infection. HIV is diagnosed with a blood test, and HIV lacks a cure, but... Many medications are available to fight HIV infection and the infections and cancers that come with it. Also, but people can live with the disease for many years. And by far the most encouraging is that the outlook for people with HIV AIDS is improving. But all of this is why our topic, Principles of Personal Health Information Privacy for Persons Living with HIV AIDS, is so important for family caregivers and their family members. Now, to discuss it, our guest is Michael Vaughan. Michael is a lawyer of the, um, sorry, is a lawyer and the policy director of the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association. She's been an adjunct professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of British Columbia. She's also been an adjunct professor at the university's School of Library, Archival and Information Studies, where she teaches information ethics and intellectual freedom. She's a regular guest instructor for the university's College of Health Disciplines Interdisciplinary Elective in HIV AIDS Care. She's a frequent speaker on a variety of civil liberties topics, including privacy, national security, patient rights, policing, surveillance, and free speech. And she's a former board member of the Canadian HIV AIDS Legal Network and an advisory board member of Privacy International. So welcome to the show, Michael. Nice to be here. Thank you. 
Great. First question for you, please. Please tell us more about your work with the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, especially as that work relates to HIV AIDS. Michael? Well, in the 1980s, the BC Civil Liberties Association, which I'm going to refer to as the BCCLA, was one of the very first non-AIDS organizations to weigh in on the rights of people living with HIV. And that includes issues of discrimination, access to treatment, opposition to mandatory testing, etc. Um, I was an educator at AIDS Vancouver before I went to law school, so the idea of working on rights issues for people living with HIV was, of course, very attractive to me, and doing that with the BCCLA has occurred for me as staff since uh, 11 years ago. Now, patients' rights in general are an incredibly important um, aspect of our uh, portfolios that we work on at the BCCLA, and I would say growing aspect. Uh, some of our more recent work has included fighting to maintain, if you will, the human rights perspective in HIV work. And that includes issues like informed consent to testing, opposition to forced testing, access to medical cannabis as treatment, the criminalization of non-disclosure to sexual partners, and, of course, privacy and confidentiality of personal health information in both clinical and research settings. So in our um, current HIV work, we work very closely with a number of just fantastic organizations, and they include the Canadian HIV AIDS Legal Network and AIDS service organizations of all kinds, like the Positive Living Society. Now, let's, let me follow on, please, Michael, with a more detailed definition challenge. Please tell us what privacy means, how privacy differs from confidentiality, and why it's important to distinguish between privacy and confidentiality, especially in regard to HIV AIDS. Michael? Well, confidentiality is where something is held in confidence. That's the language we use. That means not disclosed. And healthcare professionals have a duty not to disclose information that is discerned or communicated during a consultation with a patient. Now, of course, there will be some disclosures within what we call the medical or health circle of care. So if I'm a doctor and I have information about one of my patients who's confided in me about a historical childhood sexual abuse and a possible broken leg, the information about the leg is going to be conveyed to the x-ray technician. That's within the circle of care. But the sexual abuse information is not. That's held confidentially. Now, this circle of care concept is very important as we consider the related concept of privacy. Now, we certainly have privacy norms, and there are deeply felt senses about what is and what is not appropriate to share. But privacy rights in relation to personal information are usually connected to specific legislation. So if we have privacy laws relating to our personal information that's held by both public or private sector bodies, including healthcare, those privacy laws dictate how our information can be collected, used, and disclosed. And here is an example to show the difference between confidentiality and privacy. 
because privacy laws generally allow information about patients to flow into electronic health record systems that health providers don't control. And those healthcare providers now, when they cannot control the information, cannot guarantee confidentiality. They don't know who is going to access the information because they don't control the access. But privacy laws allow for this. And incidentally, we think this is a huge problem. Now, I want to follow up on by driving a bit further down into the details of what these terms tend to mean or refer to. You've, you've been talking about um, health information. There's something in the field that um, we're broadly considering called personal health information. What's meant by that, especially as it relates to men, women and children living with HIV AIDS in Canada and how that personal health information differs from personal information collected by social services? Michael? Well, sometimes personal health information is a defined term within a statute, so it's given a particular legal definition. But in the main, most of those legal definitions involve any information relating to a person's physical and mental um, medical treatment and their medical health, and it certainly includes personally identifiable information. So personal health information for people living with HIV who are in treatment, for example, will have some unique features, uh, like a particular test that gauges how prevalent the virus is in their system. That's a measure we call viral load. Uh, and a marker for the strength of the immune system. That's a CD4 count. So there are some, some um, aspects of personal health information that are almost unique to HIV. Um, the law on the privacy of personal health information varies in different jurisdictions, even in a given country like Canada. Some provinces and territories have what we call standalone legislation that governs personal health information, and other provinces like BC, where I am, we have a mix. There's some general privacy laws that apply to the public and private sector and so govern personal health information in those sectors, but also some specific legislation, for example, governing some of the electronic databases um, that involve personal health information. And honestly, it's fair to say it is actually quite confusing. So all kinds of service providers, including healthcare service providers, gather personal information about us to provide the service. And government social service providers like healthcare providers gather information that might be very sensitive. Now, some of the privacy concerns that are developing right now involve breaking down the walls, as they put it, that previously held these different kinds of sensitive information, say health information over here and social services information over here. There really is a sort of a increasing push for an integrated approach to citizens' information that would allow sharing of information between ministries and agencies, for example, um, like sharing information between the ministries of health and social services. And this is a profound and radical change and really upends uh, citizens' privacy rights and the goods that flow from having separate compartments for this information. And in Canada, some of the biggest pushback on this kind of integration is coming from HIV-positive communities. 
That's a leadership issue, isn't it? You've just made that point that the HIV AIDS community is leading the what I'm going to call the push against this. Now, I just want to mention something that's happened here in Ontario that's caused a lot of adverse publicity and which quite strongly relates to the idea of children being protected. What's happened very briefly is that in several major hospitals, the hospitals have been selling the personal health information of mothers and their newborns in obstetrical care. Um, what that means is that the newborn baby's information is going out into that broad record, which isn't even within what I'll call the domain of healthcare. It's going out into the commercial world. Now, I'm not going to ask you the obvious question that, that to confirm that that's a terrible thing. What I'm asking you is, just very briefly, is that the sort of thing that is getting the attention that it needs, the sort of challenge, the sort of problems. Michael? Well, it, it certainly is on the radar of communities um, of people living with HIV, um, so information sent to marketers. I think more so it is intergovernmental sharing, um, and this has to do with how people might be prejudiced um, in their interactions with other health care providers and other service providers if their HIV status is known but not needed to be known. So very often you'll hear people say, well, I need to know. I need to know the HIV status of this person. And really there is no need to know to provide the service that they're providing. Um, what the information does is simply allow you essentially to treat this person differently in some regard. And we call that discrimination. And I would say that is, is more the fever pitch uh, within HIV communities, although they're very aware of the, um, of the sale and marketing use of personal health information that ex escapes the circle of care as well. Right. Now, at that point, we've arrived at the stage where we have to take the break. Um, I always say this is the time we need to pay the rent, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Michael Vaughn. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before... 
Let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite. I'm Michael Vaughn. Our topic is Principles of Personal Health Information Privacy for Persons Living with HIV AIDS. Michael, now let's talk about the challenges to privacy of men, women, and children with HIV AIDS in Canada. Now, I know we've mentioned several of the things, aspects of this, and you've stressed them very clearly, but I just want to go into this, these questions in, in a slightly different way. First question then is, what do you see as the most challenging of the challenges to privacy of men, women and children living with HIV AIDS when those challenges are created by personal health information record systems used by healthcare services? Michael? Well, this really gets to the nub of it, I think. Um, Really, the most challenging thing right now is that the entire model of how we safeguard privacy is is pretty much flying out the window. Um, the traditional model is that information is held by the healthcare practitioner, and it's only disclosed on the basis of a need to know within the circle of care or express consent by the patient. And I call that the push model. And in the push model, the healthcare provider pushes the personal health information of the patient to someone who needs that information because they're caring for the patient or someone who the patient consents to have that information shared with. Now, it's very different to what is happening right now. The new model that is supplanting this is what I call the pull model. And in this model, government pulls the personal health information of patients from everywhere into a giant interoperable database that is accessible through thousands and thousands of portals so that people who have access to the database can look up the information of the patients that they're caring for. Of course, they might also look up the information of people who they have no right to access their information. And who gets the ability to get into such systems and use the information is now in the hands of government and not the healthcare providers. And those healthcare providers are bound not only by laws, but of course their professional ethics. So really that loss of patient and healthcare provider control over the data is honestly the biggest challenge presented by electronic healthcare record systems. Very clear. Now, similar question. What do you see as the most challenging of the challenges to privacy of men, women, and children living with HIV-AIDS, where the challenges are created by personal information record systems used by social services? 
Michael? Well, you know, it's almost exactly the same kind of developments that we're seeing um, in the social services sector. Um, so we're seeing taking information out of service provider and citizen control and placing it again in giant repositories where government decides on the access and they are pushing for ever greater access and also comprehensive data linkages between ministries and agencies. So just to tease out some um, more of the problems here that are common to both the health and social services sector, uh, clearly a, a vast and vastly expanded number of people have access to your information when the government goes into the giant repository model. Now, that's a privacy problem. But there are also security problems in that what you're doing is creating what we call a giant honeypot of information. And any security breach of that database is going to have a huge impact on people's personal information. Because, of course, in a more siloed system, or if you want to go way back in a paper-based system, for example, um, but even in a more siloed electronic and digital system, you can have information fall into the wrong hands. Somebody may get access to a computer with a single server on it, or think of misdirected faxes or um, misaddressed mail. But the breach in that case is very limited, usually only a single person or a small group. Whereas the kinds of repositories that we're dealing with, security breaches of information stockpiled digitally, can affect hundreds, thousands, or hundreds of thousands of people. So meanwhile, on another level, the entire point of this interagency and interministerial data linkages is supposed to provide better assistance to people. But there is real evidence that in many cases, it does exactly the opposite and can even prevent people from accessing services. So as a very concrete example, a single mother with HIV may decide to disclose to her doctor that she thinks she has postpartum depression, but she may be very reluctant to seek that help if the information is also going to be accessible by the child protection authorities. And these are the kinds of things that we're seeing across the boards where people are disincentivized by the data linkages from accessing the service that they have a right to. Now, I want to follow on with another of these parallels with challenges and challenging challenges to privacy, privacy of men, women, and children living with HIV AIDS. And I'm talking now about the challenges created by public health services in their work of advancing the health of the public. Um, I should just perhaps add that when I was in medicine, I'm retired now, I was, I was a specialist in public health and I was very aware and still am of the point that the public health services do involve, do require um, personal health information because some of the things that they're wanting to advance, like making sure that people get the immunization they need, and that's another controversial subject, um, they are actually accessing some kinds of records. Now, I know I've been lecturing you about this particular point, but I think it's one that I'd like very much to hear you express your views on the whole question of public health services in their work of advancing the health of the public, the privacy issues. Michael? 
Well, certainly public health needs data. The question is how much data do they need, how do they protect it, um, and when do they need it. Um, and I think public health in terms of what's happening in relation to HIV really varies across the country. But, I, you know, I can give some examples from a situation in British Columbia, um, which is in many ways a quite extreme situation, um, in particular in relation to HIV, because public health in British Columbia is really promoting an approach to HIV, public health, called treatment as prevention, which aims for universal testing and treatment. Now, I mean, there's not even a question here. Offering HIV testing is always to the good, not even a question. The problem comes when the desire to see more and more testing starts conflicting with other goods, such as informed consent and privacy. So people in British Columbia are not necessarily being informed of important matters in relation to HIV testing because there is this push to, if you will, streamline testing, to not create any barriers to testing. So, for example, people ordinarily think that HIV tests are confidential. And yet, as of changes made a few years ago, those tests results flow right into the electronic health care record repository for all laboratory tests in British Columbia. There's no special silo for them, which, again, many people, because it was long the system, continue to assume. And in 2014, there was research done in British Columbia by the BC Centre for Disease Control showing that 31% of people would be reluctant to test for HIV and other STIs if their information were to flow into an electronic health care record. And that's exactly what it does in British Columbia. But instead of telling people the truth and making sure that they know how to exercise their options to lock down their records or to avail themselves of anonymous HIV testing, what generally happens is that people are told their information goes into a quote-unquote confidential database. And that's certainly not how an ordinary person would understand the data system that is accessible through tens of thousands of portals province-wide. Now, nobody would describe that system as confidential. So when people find out that the testing system, well, what it really consists of, that it isn't confidential in the way that they thought and they weren't told the real story, their trust in the testing system is completely undermined. Now, public health doesn't want to square with people because they don't want to create, as I said, barriers to testing. But in, in my view, this is the wrong approach altogether. What you need is to make the testing system safe, private, and transparent so you build trust. That is how you bring people into care. And by doing the things that you've been describing in such a way that people are asked what they think and such high proportions of them, relatively speaking, uh, based on what they hear, are not willing to disclose, not willing to take tests and the rest of it. That really is undermining the whole purpose of public health, isn't it? It it absolutely is. Um, You know, one of the things that that we need to understand here is that if we want people to come forward to testing, we have to listen to what they say about what their needs are. And it's very, very clear. I've seen data um, on reluctance to test on the basis of um, privacy concerns from other jurisdictions. And somewhere between a quarter to a third of people is fairly standard. The UK clocks in at 27%. BC 
currently 31. There really is a sizable demographic of people. And part of my concern is that sizable demographic of people may well represent the people who are most at risk, hence their heightened privacy concern. So it may be actually even more concerning than these already quite troubling statistics tell us in terms of who we are not allowing into our testing system on the basis of failing failing to honour what they need in terms of privacy. And that is a carry-forward thing. I've already made the point, and forgive me if I make it again, but the idea that um, a newborn child will have this kind of data in his or her um, electronic health record, which accompanies him or her throughout their lives, and presumably the lives of their descendants, that raises huge issues of a kind that... Uh, here's my prejudice showing, I think we're not addressing in the way that they need addressing. And my hunch is that uh, if I ask you, do you agree with me on that? I think you will. What what do you think, Michael? Uh, Yes, I absolutely do agree with you. I I think that there has been, I I think though, Gordon, honestly, that we're starting to see the wind the wind turn a little bit on this. There was a huge amount of sort of almost uncritical enthusiasm for what digitization and increased data sharing could do in terms of research and efficacy and better service provision. And it was really largely unexamined in terms of what the downside could be. Now we're getting a much more concerted drumbeat on, hey, these are all the things you didn't consider. So um, I I think there is, uh, your hunch was correct, I do agree with you, Uh, but I think there's a a growing voice along those lines. Excellent. Now, at this point, we take the break. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Michael Vaughn. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We will be back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. News. Opinion. 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 Opinion.
Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Michael Vaughn. Our topic is Principles of Personal Health Information Privacy for Persons Living with HIV-AIDS. Now, in the previous segment, Michael, you identified challenges to privacy of men, women, and children living with HIV-AIDS. Now let's focus on the principles for protecting their privacy. So, Michael, first, what do you see as the key principles for protecting the human rights of all of these people who are living with or, if you like, uh, at risk of HIV-AIDS, the human rights? Michael? Well, that really goes to the home of my heart um, because I believe that HIV really brought the language of human rights to healthcare. Um, of course, it was building on the work of other communities, including the women's community, mental health consumers, and others. But it really was HIV that took human rights into the heart of healthcare. And unsurprisingly, there has always been resistance to this. Um, very early on, you saw people arguing about what they termed HIV exceptionalism. That is, that you were, um, and that exceptionalism included things like that you were supposed to be very clear in getting informed consent and very careful about information sharing, etc. Um, again, we take these as a norm right now, not as an exceptional state. But the big challenge at the moment is that so many people who are justifiably excited about the great news about new treatments um, for HIV are expressly or implicitly arguing that this means that now HIV can be normalized so that we just lower the standards across the board. Uh, an approach that when unpacked turns out to mean that you don't have to be very concerned about human rights anymore. Thank you very much. We've got good meds. And, and this is incredibly concerning. Um, we see terrible things going on where advocates who are arguing for privacy rights and informed consent are painted as perpetuating the stigma of HIV, as if this is kind of insisting that HIV be different, and that's a huge problem. I, I, this is honestly positively Orwellian doublespeak. I mean, you don't promote the privacy of people living with HIV because only HIV patients need privacy. All patients need privacy rights. The simple truth is that the consequences of disclosure for people living with HIV can be much more severe than they are for some other kinds of patients. So not exclusively, but very much so for people living in small towns, just as an example, where disclosure can be so devastating that they elect to leave town. So the key principle for protecting the human rights of people living with HIV is, I think, at this moment, the standard of human rights that HIV introduced into healthcare wasn't an exception. It is meant to be the norm, and it is for all healthcare for all time. Very powerful. What do you see as the key principles for privacy laws for protecting the community we're talking about? Okay. Well, 
this is a pretty snappy answer, I think, because the key principle for privacy protection is patient control. Yeah. Patient control is how you safeguard trust in the system. Um, now, that said, that doesn't mean that you can't have patient information in a database. The way you get most all-round benefits, you get efficiency, you get access where it's needed, you get patient privacy, is to have certain information in the database. I don't believe all information should be in the database, by the by. But what information is in the database needs to be locked down with a code that the patient controls. And then, of course, an emergency override for cases of emergency. And, and here's where I think, you know, we have examples in the system that should work brilliantly, but they don't because of a failure to honor patient control. So the example I'm thinking of is we have a system in British Columbia in which all prescriptions are recorded in a database that is broadly available throughout the province to pharmacists and other healthcare providers. And, and this is an understandably important thing because it is not an unusual situation if you're filling a prescription with someone who is not your ordinary pharmacist. You want the pharmacist that you're dealing with to make sure that you are not going to see any harmful drug interactions between any of your current medications and this new prescription. So this is an incredibly important safety feature. But because we have this important safety feature, this does not mean that your prescription history should be available to any pharmacist in the province who chooses to look up your records, um, you know, including your ex-husband or your nosy neighbor. Of course not. Um, you can lock down your records with a keyword. And only those healthcare providers who you give that keyword to, so the new pharmacist you're seeing, you say, here's my keyword so you can access my records, can get into that record. And as I say, of course, there's an emergency override for situations in which you might not be conscious, et cetera. Now, this, in my mind, is absolutely the correct balancing. And here's how it is currently not working. Almost no one will tell you that you can lock down your records. I myself was a privacy lawyer for over two years before I heard, and then through the grapevine, that you could lock down your prescription records. Now, every patient must not only have this control, this right, but they have to know they have the ability to do this. And currently, even when you get the system right, I think this system is right, which is rare, we don't operationalize it. And we don't operationalize it because we refuse to honor patient control, which is the key. That's a powerful statement of a kind of contradiction. On the one hand, the lock idea uh, is an advancement, and it's well, well fits your point that things are actually or could be improving. On the other hand, the lack of knowledge that's being provided to people who might want to lock their records, um, that lack of information flow is a major weakness which basically deters all progress. So I just want to emphasize to you by saying thank you for talking about this lock because I doubt if many people outside of BC know of this and it's something that thank you needs publicizing. Now, I'm going to take you to the key principles for public health services for protecting the privacy of our commu the community we're talking about, while at the same time they are actually uh, striving to advance the health of the public. What are the principles that they should operate on, these public health 
services. Michael? Well, I think the key principle for public health services in relation to HIV at this time should be that privacy is the friend of public health, not the enemy. Um, Canada does not have what we call a generalized pandemic of HIV. Um, while it is true, of course, that any, anyone can get HIV, the simple fact is that the epidemiology of HIV in Canada shows very distinct concentrations of HIV within certain communities. Um, for example, men who have sex with men is still a very large percentage of new infections, and Aboriginal communities also incredibly hard hit by HIV. So while much of the public health messaging is for universal testing, there are clearly communities that are at greatly increased risk. And it is imperative that these communities do not lose trust in the public health and medical system. So public health approaches have in some ways become much more aggressive since the advent of new treatment options in HIV. And while everyone, of course, wants the benefits of these new treatments to be widely available, um, testing without proper consent and due privacy protections are both a human rights violation and counterproductive to public health, as we were discussing before. So you know, the most vulnerable communities in this case are also the most readily alienated. Um, we had to bring some limited anonymous testing in BC back. We used to have anonymous testing in the old days, then we got rid of it, and we had to bring it back because the social science evidence showed that certain demographics didn't trust that tests were, that were going through the regular system would be appropriately private. Now, this should have been a huge wake-up call to public health. I am absolutely in favor of anonymous testing, but the simple fact is that you can't remain anonymous if you want to access treatment. There is no anonymous treatment, for example, so you can only hold the test result, and the minute you want treatment, you go into the regular medical health privacy regime. So if we want people to test and we want them to access treatment, we have to make the system safe for them, and indeed, we need to make the system safe for everyone. So as I say, the number one principle that I would be promoting at this point is that privacy is the friend of public health. Excellent. Now, I just want to introduce something a little bit different because it relates to something you said, and it, you, you made a very nice point when you talked about the giant honeypot, um, the big data. Now, there's another big data question, which is uh, all this collecting of information about people's genetic history into huge big databases, all of which raises questions about who knows what about whom. Now, is there any crossover in the kind of things you've been talking about, um, in your view, with the challenges to these big data ideas that are getting more and more common and more and bigger and bigger as they go? Michael? Absolutely, there's a connection. Um, as you say, in sort of the big data paradigm, there is a belief that um, the bigger and sometimes described as richer the data set, the more we're going to be able to mine it for, um, un, you know, here to, un, to for uh, suspected linkages that are going to lead us into new directions in research and exciting new developments for care. Um, so there is a voracious and indeed unstoppable appetite for 
data of all kinds, social science data, medical data. We want it all in a big repository so that we can mine it and discover these things that we, we hadn't even known to look for before. That's the sort of the theory of big data. The right. problem is this runs into smack into the issues that we've been discussing about, well, we want some information to flow into a repository, but we don't want that repository to be widely available, and we want actually some information is so concerning that we might want an absolute silo. For example, if we looked at this data, about 31% of people reluctant to test because the information is flowing into a repository, what if we said, okay, it's going to flow into a repository, but that repository will be siloed. It can not be linked to anything else so that, again, we maintain a much tighter control over who has access. Well, the researchers don't want that. The government doesn't want that. So the big data push is really to prevent the kinds of firewalls that create privacy. And so it is absolutely in keeping with what we're discussing. Right. Now, once again, it's time to take the break, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Michael Vaughn. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Michael Vaughn. Our topic is Principles of Personal Health Information Privacy for Persons Living with HIV-AIDS. Michael, let's talk about, please, what more you would like to do and see done to strengthen respect for the 
key principles which you've identified for protecting the human rights of men, women and children with HIV AIDS. So, Michael, through the BCCLA, British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, what more would you like to do to strengthen respect for the key principles for protecting the human rights of the community we care about? Michael? Well, I think a big chunk of our upcoming work in this regard is going to be um, working with the government of British Columbia on its proposed new health information framework. Um, as I was mentioning earlier, privacy law in relation to personal health information is quite often very confusing, um, and our jurisdiction is one of the most confusing. So the Information and Privacy Commissioner has proposed that there be standalone legislation, one legislation that governs all personal health information in the province as a means of simplifying things. And while, of course, we are, as the Civil Liberties Association, always in favor of laws being clear and accessible, there is a terrible danger that a harmonization of laws will result in a race to the bottom and that the lowest level of privacy protection will become the norm across the boards. So HIV-positive communities in British Columbia who have long taken the lead in opposing the watering down of health privacy rights, um, we are working with them in every way we can um, to, uh, to uphold an appropriate standard. And, and more broadly, with respect to human rights of people with HIV, we're working in coalition again with organizations across Canada on a number of issues, including HIV criminalization. Um, not many people know that Canada is one of the most aggressive prosecutors of people living with HIV for non-disclosure to sexual partners. And this really ties into um, health in issues because while many people feel that it is, of course, important for people to disclose their HIV status to sexual partners, the situation in Canada has really had devastating unintended consequences, particularly uh, for people who are in abusive relationships. So just quickly to understand, if I'm a woman in an abusive relationship and I test positive for HIV today, I am required by law to disclose this to my abusive partner before our next sexual encounter. And if I fail to do so, even for fear of my own personal safety, I am at risk of prosecution for aggravated sexual assault. So this illustrates the keen need for um, healthcare providers to talk to people about HIV testing and giving them absolutely the information they need to know to understand whether or not this is the right time to test or whether you need to be in a safer place before you do that. These are the kinds of human rights issues that are front and center of HIV right here today. Okay. Now, what more would you like to see done and by whom? to strengthen respect for the key principles. Um, you mentioned you're going to be working with the government. So that's one, I suppose, partner, if you like, in this kind of effort. But government is one thing. What about all the other organizations in our society? What would you like to see them do to strengthen respect for the principles? Michael? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that I can really think of off the top of my head is um, the healthcare sector has not stepped up to the plate. Uh, and I'm sorry to say that in part because I know individual healthcare providers who are fantastic patients' rights advocates, but they so often work alone. 
the sector itself has really been um, a, something of a letdown, quite honestly. Um, you will see the sector, for example, really promoting when it comes to things like electronic health records, really sort of not standing up for patient privacy rights, but really talking about efficiencies and how they want data to flow, right? Of course, it's important that we have uh, efficiencies in healthcare, uh, but as patients' rights advocates, the sector has been, um, as I say, a tremendous disappointment. So that when, for um, just to give an example, uh, a number of years ago, I was at an e-health conference in Alberta, um, where I actually heard a representative from uh, the Ministry of Health, again government, brag that Alberta was now a consent-free zone with respect Gosh. to patient control of their data. Now, of course, this is absolutely shameful. Um, so there's healthcare providers in the room, and no one voiced opposition to that. And I appreciate that, again, I'm asking in that case an individual to stand forward and be, be very courageous to, you know, speak up against the health minister or what have you. But the sector has much more power than an individual. And the sector, all of the, um, you know, healthcare provider organizations, unions, etc., I feel could really be taking a much stronger stand on behalf of the patients who they so often are the individual advocates for. Right. Now, if I could just... Um just clarify a particular point. You are including physicians in this, in the phrase you use, the healthcare sector, are you? Yes, I am, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's important because, um, as one, I've recognized the same thing that there isn't that interest in privacy that you would expect. Given that physicians are there and are expected to be there for their patients, for the people who need their care. Now, I won't lecture you or anybody else any more on that, but I thank you for saying that. Now, mm -hmm. I, I want to ask you something quite different. What we're doing now is recording an episode in which you have discussed a topic that is important for the HIV-AIDS community. The episode will be saved in an archive. As you know, do you think that having more discussions like this one in the archive, particularly if it were to involve people from the community who would like to talk about their experiences? And so do you think such discussions, more of them would be helpful? And if so, how particularly would they be helpful to the HIV AIDS community? But if you disagree that they would be helpful, please, please say why. Michael? I absolutely don't disagree. Um, privacy is a, a critical concern of communities living with HIV, and yet you find very, very few people who describe themselves as patient privacy rights advocates. I, and I know this because I've flown thousands of miles to present at conferences on the topic of patients' concerns or patients' rights because the organizers couldn't find anyone who... Um, stood up to that description, who said, yes, that's what I do, um, that was any closer to them. So I think there's a massive disconnect. Patients care very deeply, but that deep concern isn't anywhere reflected in the number of people who describe themselves 
as health privacy advocates. And I want to see way, way more people use that language to describe themselves. Um, you don't have to understand the complex and convoluted laws and the architecture of highly technical systems to be a patient's rights advocate and to argue from the patient's rights perspective. You need to know that patients and their allies, um, what, what they already know, that privacy is critical, and what we need is patient control over access to the information. That's yep. it. And any system that doesn't deliver that is not appropriate. So I say this is not a field just for specialists, and I hope that discussions like this will encourage more and more people to come forward and say, yeah, my voice is critical here too, and I know what I'm talking about. Thank you, for, thank you, Michael, for that. And thank you for sharing with us your experience, your insights, and your opinions. And thank you for pointing out to us, vitally important, just how much of a lead the HIV AIDS community has provided us with and how much of a lead, Michael, that you, through your work, are providing. Um, I want to thank our listeners. I want to just very quickly say that with Family Caregivers Unite, we're starting a new research project called Equalitative Research, which this episode is part of. The idea is to find out what you, our listeners, think about important topics like the one we've just been listening to and for you to share with us your experiences of healthcare. So please email me to hear more or to get involved. And also, if you'd like to be a guest on the show, here's how to connect with me. Please email me at docg at FamilyCaregiversUnite, all one word, dot org. Now, our next episode will be successful approaches by individuals, families, and family caregivers living with FASD. Please join us, same time, same spot on the internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being right.